Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Professor Eric Janislavski. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Deacon. Uh, I am certainly the least of my, my brethren. The thesis is, is complete. It's been, it's been deposited in Catholic News' very slow-moving hands for almost three years now. So um, I'm, I'm glad to come and talk to you tonight about God's self-revelation in the Old Testament. And I wanted to uh, broaden out sort of our concept of all the things that are given to us in the Old Testament. Tonight, primarily, I'm going to focus on the early revelation in the Old Testament and the Pentateuch. We're going to weave in some things from prophets and uh, some of the later scriptures. But part two, which is next week, uh, we're going to take a look at uh, some of the later developments in the Old Testament, especially as they begin to build on some of these foundations in the direction of the revelation of the Most Blessed Trinity. So... One of the first things I wanted to uh, take a look at in understanding the God that reveals himself to us in the Old Testament is this notion of divine revelation itself. Uh, it's kind of, uh, Deacon encouraged me to bring books by, and I'm going to draw up a bibliography. I, I read lots of really boring, tedious books, books that are, are of the type that you, you might not really sit down and relish, but that's kind of the thing I signed up for when I started doing this bit. Um, but one nice one on the theology of divine revelation in general, uh, you'll see a few quotes from it, Rene Latourelle's Theology of Revelation, and I'll, I'll make up a bibliography of some things that might be helpful. It's out of print. You've got to go you know, to some used book uh, hawker online and see if you can snag a copy. Uh, but it's a quite nice volume just on the concept of revelation. That is to say, not what God actually reveals, but the whole notion of revelation what it is and how it develops all the way up to our present-day understanding of Revelation uh, in the Second Vatican Council's teaching on divine revelation, Dei Verbum. So it's a rather masterful study from the Old Testament right up through Vatican II. Uh, I use this as a text. You can see it's, <laughs> it's marked up. But um, I wanted to recommend it to you if you're interested in this topic of the God who reveals himself. One of the things that uh, you know, is essential to our Catholic understanding of God is that he reveals himself in two ways. And we're going to focus on the second way mostly tonight, uh, but he reveals himself through nature and through revelation. It's, it's probably, you know, some of these things might be stating the obvious at the outset and sometimes very novel ideas, you know, sorry, very familiar ideas don't seem terribly radical to us, but it's not, it's not the case that uh, every person who's thought about God, every religion or Every philosophical system has this concept of a God who reveals himself. Uh, it's not uh, something that you see in every idea of God that's ever been had. And the Old Testament itself and the New uh, both witness to the first mode whereby God reveals himself. We often don't consider this divine revelation properly speaking. We usually save that term for the supernatural ways that God reveals himself to us. But I think it's important and essential to our Christian worldview uh, to get on the table first what we know through reason and indeed what we see in Scripture, that God reveals himself to us constantly 
through his presence in nature. Perhaps the best Old Testament instance of this is Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4 here. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So that speechless speech, that uh, wordless word, is the intelligibility of God as seen in the things that he has created, as seen in the things that are his creatures. Very similar sentiment found in Paul's Romans. Uh, just to jump into the New Testament, this is often the companion of Psalm 19 when we want to talk about a biblical foundation for our natural knowledge of God. Uh, Paul in Romans 1, 19 through 20, uh, talking about uh, the Gentiles who had not yet received Christ or had not yet received uh, the Old Testament either, says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Uh, so both Old and New Testament uh, give us this constant yet quiet mode of God's self-revelation through the nature that he has crafted. And I think that's an important step. One of the uh, opening quotes of that book I just mentioned, Rotterell's Theology of Revelation, uh, starts off with the claim, God is not an absent presence. Uh, he is not this sort of inaccessible void, but rather he is present to us, and the Judeo-Christian tradition affirms that God reveals himself by means of an intelligible word. Uh, and our destiny as creatures is to know that word, is to know God through his word. In fact, if you look at, I think it's by far the most favored term for how God reveals himself in the Old Testament. Yes, sometimes through visions, uh, sometimes through uh, the still small voice or the small quiet sound. Uh, that Elijah hears on Sinai, but the, very often the most common way God reveals himself to his people is by the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to the prophets. The word of the Lord uh, you know, came to King David. Moses spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Uh, this notion of God having an intelligible word to speak to us and the, the common way that is available to all men uh, whether they've received revelation or not, is first through the way God makes himself evident through nature. And to appreciate this point, uh, the idea that we are, through nature, able to come into an intellectual awareness and contact with God the Creator, uh, not every intellectual system has thought that. Now, I'm not an expert uh, on, on systems of Buddhist thought, but a claim I feel safe making is the height of contemplation uh, for Buddhism, for example, is, is a cessation of thought. It is uh, achieving a, a stage of emptiness where mental striving finally ceases and one uh, attains this state of awakening or enlightenment. It's precisely kind of the opposite in some ways of the Christian understanding of mystical contemplation. Both have, as JP2 said uh, in his book, Crossing the Threshold of Hope, a certain passing beyond the transience of things to get to what's behind them but quite a difference in the Christian picture that ultimately nature leads us to this one positive supreme being that is God who is most intelligible, most actual, most real, rather than an understanding of passing beyond transience to a state of nothingness. 
not every religious system has thought of God as an ultimate object of knowledge. But nonetheless, when we speak of God as a word, uh, that is one of the first categories that comes to our mind because words exist solely to convey to us knowledge of things. Uh, Greek philosophy also uh, you know, did a little bit differently. God is a supreme cosmic principle there. Uh, they would certainly, in their more enlightened stages of Greek philosophy, talk about the one, the good, the true, the beautiful, those transcendental terms that are always part of the Christian theology of God. Uh, this was knowable by reason, but it is not something that acts personally in history. And that's not what we see in the Judeo-Christian revelation. We have a God who both can be known by reason, but indeed also comes and tells us about himself in history. And for the Greek thought, uh, that was simply a myth. You know, these were nice legends about whatever Zeus or Hera had done. Primarily for the intellectual Greek, God was knowable only through reason, by his effects, which were the created world, but not through supernatural revelation. Uh, so Catholics, by contrast, profess that God reveals himself both through nature, which we grasp through reason, and through supernatural revelation, which we grasp by both faith, first, and reason, second. Uh, we oftentimes like to pair them, nature understood by reason, revelation understood by faith, but let's not leave reason out of the revelation category either, because the whole point of grasping things by faith is so that faith puts out into the deep and faith seeks deeper understanding. And the other key thing to the Catholic picture is that these two things, of course, agree with one another. There's not a disparity between what we know about God through reason and what we know about God through revelation. And I think it's kind of nice, therefore, that we have scriptural texts like Psalm 19 and Romans 1 that tell us from revelation that there is a God knowable by reason. You can contrast that to some more modern uh, positions. Maybe some of you know uh, the religious philosophy called deism. It was popular during the time of the Enlightenment. Some of the American founding fathers were deists. You probably know it by its little image of the watchmaker god who creates everything and gives it an intelligibility and order, sets it up, and then doesn't mess with it after that, doesn't supernaturally intervene. Uh, a lot of people fell back from Christianity into deism during the period of the Enlightenment and its rationalism. So that's a modern philosophy that's still kicking around to this day, a god that's knowable by reason, but not by revelation. Uh, revelation would simply be a rather nice story suited for primitive people, but ultimately completely replaced by philosophy. Uh, Luther, to take another noteworthy example, uh, had a very low appraisal about the capacity of the human mind to know God by reason. Uh, reason is so corrupted after the fall, according to Luther, uh, that its notions of God are untrustworthy. If you want a good example of this, uh, here's a little excerpt from Luther's commentary on Galatians. Uh, his commentary on Galatians 1.3, it's just the prologue of Galatians. Luther says, we are not to inquire curiously into the nature of God. True Christian theology does not inquire into the nature of God, but into God's purpose and will in Christ, whom God incorporated in our flesh to live and die for our sins. There is nothing more dangerous, says Luther, than to speculate about the incomprehensible power, wisdom, and majesty of God when the conscience is in turmoil over sin. To do so is to lose God altogether because God becomes intolerable when we seek to measure 
and to comprehend his infinite majesty. And maybe that's a, a, a one, you know, quote summary that might show you some of Luther's attitude towards, uh, in his view, the futility of philosophy and the futility of natural reason in inquiring into the things of God. So while deism uh, you know, affirms that we can know him by reason and not revelation, Luther went the opposite way and said we can know God really only by revelation and that we shouldn't put stock in reason at least after the fall, which would of course apply to 99.999% of the human race and the remainder for a few days. So uh, that, is, uh, that is a rather different notion than what we see, I would claim, in the Judeo-Christian tradition properly construed. So uh, the Catholic perspective is a unity of revelation. That's where we get our principles of faith and reason, of natural theology, talking about God through what we can know by our reason, and supernatural revelation, the rest of theology talking about God insofar as he's revealed himself to us. And there's a nice overlap between them. Some people ask the question, uh, if I were more sophisticated in PowerPoint, I would have drawn you a little Venn diagram with two overlapping circles. I'll get there. Uh, PowerPoint and I have had a slow uh, love affair. We're, we're getting used to each other. Uh, I have to thank this institute for being the occasion of drawing up lots of PowerPoint. So I'm um, usually too lazy, sorry students, to do that for all my lectures. But um, you know, we know some things about God through reason, and we know other things about God through revelation, and there is an overlap between those. There are some things that we can know both by reason and revelation, and there are some things that we can know by revelation alone. So uh, Paul gave us some examples of that a moment ago in Romans 1, where he said God's existence and his eternal power and deity were knowable by reason. Even the Gentiles who had received neither Old nor New Testament could know these things by virtue of the things that had been made. Revelation, as we'll see, also tells us the same things about God. And we'll drill into what we're told in Genesis in just a second. Uh, but there are uh, other things, of course, which are God's self-revelation that could in no way be grasped by reason. Uh, the primary example of this is the doctrine of the Most Blessed Trinity. Uh, this is something which no amount of rational inquiry into nature can recover. It's a mystery stricti dictu, strictly speaking. Uh, so there is some overlap between them, though. God does reveal sometimes things that we can know by reason. Why? Well, the simple answer is to make it easy for us. Uh, Vatican I had a lot to say about this, but it's, it's probably best known paragraph. Uh, quoted almost verbatim in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 38, comes from Dei Filius, its uh, dogmatic constitution on divine revelation. Vatican I said, It is indeed thanks to this divine revelation that those matters concerning God, which are not of themselves beyond the scope of reason, can, even in the present state of the human race, be known by everyone without difficulty, with firm certitude, and with no intermingling of error. And so a nice way to sort of summarize that is that God reveals to us supernaturally some of the things that we could know by reason so that everybody can know easily, as opposed to just the smart folks and with great difficulty, so that what we know, we can know with firm certitude. I don't know if you've ever bothered to follow out a long philosophy book and you're not sure what you should keep and what you should chuck at the end of it. That might not be the most certain way to know things. Rather than when God tells us about himself, 
Uh, the God who can neither deceive nor be deceived can be trusted more than our own human inquiry. And lastly, with no intermingling of errors. Certainly, although noble, Greek philosophers made a number of errors in their appraisals of the one true, good, beautiful being that's the source of all. And so Revelation makes it easy for us so that everyone might know, and not just some, uh, with firm certainty and not with lingering doubt, and with no intermixing of error, as opposed to a mixed bag of the philosopher's findings, God reveals some things that we can know even by reason. Nice quote by La Tourelle. I thought this was a, he has a number of beautiful moments, then he gets really repetitious. So if you do read the book, you have to bear with him in the middle of it. He says at the outset of that volume, God broke the silence. God came out of his mystery. He addressed himself to man and unveiled for him the secrets of his personal life. To man, he communicated his unheard of plan for a covenant with man, offering him a share in life. And that's another thing, you know, that comes to us from the revelation side, is that God is not merely an impersonal cosmic force, but God is a personal being, and that God wishes to enter into personal relationship with each and every one of us. You know, we don't really enter into personal relationships with the law of gravity or the law of electrical. Maybe sometimes you do. Uh, <laughs> I mean, amusement parks, sometimes I've entered into a personal relationship with the law of gravity, at least from my side. I don't think it felt anything towards me or cared about me, but I certainly felt really personally involved with it. Uh, every now and again, when I, when I go back and play scientist with my kids, uh, I enter into a personal relationship with laws of electricity, usually by accident. Um, but this is not the same, right? A cosmic principle is not something which has a concern for our salvation, is not something that has a desire to draw us to it. Uh, and so even the very act of God bothering, so to speak, to step out of the silence, to break the silence, and to reveal himself to us, even in that first communication, it speaks volumes about the nature of who God is. Now we're going to work at the doctrine of God, the creator, and it's ultimately going to go Trinitarian, but that's going to be part two. Uh, it's hard to find good images of the Trinity that uh, I think nicely balance the persons, and I've got a, a, at least one funny image of the Trinity that I'll show you next time, uh, the so-called Trinitarian monstrum. Uh, <laughs> It's a kind of a disturbing image of the Trinity, but this was at least the nicest one I found of the Trinity creator, where you see uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and they are conjointly holding up mundus in the middle, the entire world. And one of the uh, things that we can examine in scripture is how God reveals himself to us in the creation narratives. Now I say that in the plural because there are many places in scripture that talk about creation. Uh, we're all familiar with Genesis 1 and 2, hopefully, because we're going to start there tonight. Uh, it's a rightly important and famous passage, even if we discard the fact that most people know about it because even the most elementary simpleton makes it through the first two pages of the Bible before he gets bored and decides to put it down. <laughs> it's like, what's in this book? Mm, you read 1 and 2, pretty good story, and then by the time you hit the genealogies in 4 and 5, the faint-hearted begin to tune out. So everybody's read it, uh, but I just wanted to keep in mind, and we'll draw some of these texts in throughout today's talk and next time, that there are many other places in Scripture that discuss God revealing himself in the act of creation. The Psalms, we'll see a bunch of Psalms today and next time, uh, frequently talk about God as he reveals himself in creating. 
Uh, Job has a number of discourses on creation. Uh, Daniel, and especially, it's kind of an interesting text. It's only found in the Septuagint version of Daniel, the hymn of the three youths cast in the fiery furnace, uh, has this wonderful thanksgiving prayer to God. And it goes through the work of the six days and uh, famously also includes the angels, which are notoriously missing from the Genesis 1 and 2 creation account. Uh, and then the wisdom literature, which will be a big focus for us in part two, the late Old Testament literature, part of the literature uh, that we have a full share of, uh, because the Protestant and, and Jewish canons, the 39 book canons, reject a number of the later Old Testament works of wisdom literature. And uh, we don't, we have them. And I'll try to develop next time when we bring in how this is built up throughout the Old Testament, how these things are really important stepping stones for the development of the doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament. So Genesis text is rightly famous. So we can start there, even if it's sometimes famous just because the lazy get that far and they don't get any further. Uh, it's probably a very familiar text to you all, hopefully. If you have your Bible, Genesis 1 account is sometimes called the work of the six days. You're probably familiar uh, with the text, so we, we won't read it uh, in extenso unless Deacon would really like us to read the entire, well, all right, okay. Uh, I'm gonna bank, I'm gonna go off on a limb and bank that people have read the first creation account, Genesis 1, the work of the six days. But I wanted to pull out some features that are already there, and again, sometimes you know familiarity hopefully doesn't breed contempt with the scripture, but it might make us unaware of the novelty of some of the things that are in this opening chapter of the sacred scripture. Uh, one of the startling things about it is that uh, this first revelation of God to Israel, at least first in this series of the canon, uh, is that it's one God and not many. And just remind yourself, and it's particularly important, especially today with like the New Age movement, um, that you know this was not the common perspective of any ancient culture around Israel at the time. All of them were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. Uh, and even after the time of the New Testament, so well on over a thousand years later, you find saints like Jerome and Augustine in the fifth century still battling kind of the remnants of this polytheism even in uh, their own day, four or five centuries after the time of Christ, uh, in the notion of dualism, that the world is somehow a cosmic battle between two powerful forces, one of light and one of darkness, one of good, one of evil. Uh, Ratzinger has a very fine book, uh, the, before he was Pope Benedict XVI. Some of you have probably seen it. It's called In the Beginning, A Catholic Understanding of the Story of the Creation and the Fall. It's just a series of homilies that he gave. That must be fun uh, to have uh, Joseph Ratzinger as your uh, regular homilist. And uh, it's, it's a short volume, so you can see it's a rather uh, attractively short volume. This is the kind of book that you might want to read. 500-page study on the notion and development of Revelation, maybe not. I still think it's very readable, though. Uh, but uh, one of the things that he points out is, you know, the ways in which the Genesis account is so pointedly anti-Babylonian. You know, the notion that uh, the world began through, uh, you know, cosmic struggle 
between uh, Marduk and Tiamat and the slaying of the dragon and the spreading out of its corpse was the unfolding of the space of the world and human beings were congealed out of drops of this dragon's blood. That gives you a radically different picture not only of creation but of man and uh, that's part of what we have to appreciate is that the Genesis account does something that no other ancient culture was doing at the time uh, by starting its depiction of how everything came to be by talking only about one God and not many. And that's going to have profound consequences, not only for how we understand the world and where it came from, but also how we relate to God. Uh, the doctrine of monotheism has a lot to do with our prayer and our devotion, and certainly a lot to do with our doctrine of the Trinity, too, because if it weren't for the fact that the Jews were trained and trained and trained again, uh, that there is one God, uh, we would go straight into tritheism when we receive the revelation of God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perhaps the uh, equally famous Old Testament text in this regard is the Shema prayer recited by pious Jews every day, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. You probably know it because our Lord identifies it as the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel. So Shema means hear, just from the first word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The first part is the monotheism, but I want to connect it in the next few slides to the second part, which is the necessity to love God with all of our soul, and with all of our might, and with all of our heart. Another feature of the Genesis text is that everything God does in Genesis 1 is good. Uh, one of the neat things I, I try to train students to be sensitive to when they're reading the Old Testament scriptures is that they didn't have bold face and underline, or in my case, even text colors. I got really creative and used two colors. Uh, <laughs> and thankfully, they all coordinate because PowerPoint takes care of that for you. So, uh, you know, the, the way that ancients, these stories were meant to be told and retold and not read in a book, the way they highlighted things was by repetition was by developing a certain narrative form. And so when you see something in the scripture that's told according to a pattern, uh, that's a way of underlining a certain element for your attention. And so when you see the work of the six days go forward in day one, day two, day three, at the end of the work of every day, we are told it is good, it is good, it is good. And then when God makes the whole at the end of the six days, he surveys all that he has made and sees that it's very good the goodness of every individual part, and then the very good being the greater goodness of all the parts working together in a nice consonant whole. And that's one way that the narrative puts stress on God's goodness, that all that God does is good. He does no evil. Likewise, uh, other early Old Testament texts, Deuteronomy 32.4, Canticle of Moses, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and right is he. Or Psalm 5, verse 4, For thou art not a God who delights in wickedness, evil may not sojourn with thee. Or again in the Psalms, Psalm 145, verse 17, The Lord is just in all his ways and kind in all of his doings. Sometimes in the language of theology we call God omnibenevolent or benevolent as a way of referring to his intrinsic goodness. Another thing that we see in the Genesis 1 narrative is... Uh, the fact that God does it all by himself. He doesn't need 
any helpers. He doesn't need any co-creators. He doesn't need some abundant stock of pre-existing matter. He doesn't fashion out of parts. In fact, the Hebrew word for create, bara, is uh, used only of God, and it, it you know, technically is referring to this creation out of nothing. We get that phrase, creation ex nihilo, from Maccabees, uh, but it is simply a commentary on how Jews had always understood God creating the world even in Genesis. Um, he does this single-handedly, and that's why sometimes I like to joke to my students when the, when the Jews fall back into idolatry, it's really tempting for them because with all the pagan polytheistic cultures around them, uh, Yahweh is the most eligible God in the Semitic world because he has, he's out of his parents' house, right? He has no father and no mother. Uh, he's single, he has no consort. Poor fellow has no brothers or sisters, he must be lonely. And so in the eyes of the many of the Canaanites around Israel, it would be very tempting to want to pair this God who does so much power and takes care of so many things. Look at how resourceful and industrious and hardworking and loving he is. He's the perfect match for this or that pagan deity, uh, typically trying to pair Yahweh up with a Canaanite goddess. Uh, and one of the things that you know the Jews cling to is this notion that God is the source of all and as we say it in more Latin terminology, that he is omnipotent. We see that also sung throughout the Psalms. Psalm 135, verses 6 through 7. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth and who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Or Psalm 115, 3. Uh, our Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Now, uh, the latter you know, verse, at least to human experience, is uh, potentially a little threatening. You know, you have some powerful person who does whatever he pleases. Uh, it's not necessarily the kind of person you want to buddy up to. You know, um, it is not true of human experience that great power and great goodness always go hand in hand. Uh, nor is it true in the other pagan religions surrounding the Jewish people, where there are wars and struggles between the deities, uh, where you know human beings might find their own fate caught up in a larger soap opera-esque drama between uh, whether it's the Olympian deities or the Canaanite deities or the Egyptian deities. Uh, this notion of many gods leads to you know, a divided loyalty and a rivalry and a deep uncertainty with respect to who you should approach and how and why. It's like walking into the middle of a mafia gang war. You're not entirely sure who your patron should be, but you know you need at least one. Uh, very different with the Jewish perspective on monotheism. And the key theme that we see in Genesis and throughout the sacred scriptures and in the Psalms is that God's great power goes hand in hand with his great goodness. Uh, that's not the most natural deduction. In our experience, sometimes you know, the most powerful can be the most threatening. And sometimes the good uh, occupy positions of weakness. And one of the key terms that grows in the scripture as a way to sort of sum up this unity of God's goodness and God's power is God's wisdom. God's power is always used according to his knowledge and his goodness. And there's sometimes, I think, in the history of thought about God, you know, a dangerous tendency to divorce the two 
God's power and God's goodness. It did happen in speculative theology in the Latin West in the late medieval period. Uh, it was a stream of thought called voluntarism. People began to uh, be concerned about placing kind of any limit on God's power because he's omnipotent. And some began to even theorize that uh, the moral law is the way it is simply because God wills it. Uh, the kind of quintessential expression of this is, you know, well, if God wanted to make murder right and love wrong, he could have willed it that way, and that would be how it is. If he wanted to make white black and black white, because his will is unlimited, that's how it is. And I think, uh, well, they're right to be concerned about any extrinsic limit on God's power. It's not like God has laws of morality that he has to follow that were set up by some other being. Uh, the thing that they forget about is that God is always true to his own nature that God is always true to his nature, which is goodness itself. Uh, you know, God wills what he knows, and what he knows is all good. That's why I started with God's benevolence, because while he is all-powerful, part of what we see, even in the Old Testament, is this constant unity of God's power and God's goodness. Uh, not what you see in other religions, not what you see sometimes in the worldviews of today. Uh, it also is a reminder to us to not forget about the primacy of God's wisdom, God's goodness, uh, even in our own approach to God. I, I don't want to uh, start uh, a pointed analysis of differences between Christianity and Islam, but you know one of the primary ways that uh, you approach God in Islam is, is understanding yourself as God's servant, as Abdullah, as the slave of Yahweh, and that's certainly, you know, an Old Testament term, but it oftentimes captures only the will of God and obedience to God without capturing the love of God and the wisdom of God to the same extent. Yes, obviously we're all called to be servants of our Creator, uh, but in the Christian tradition as in the Jewish tradition, I think you see this emphasis on the thorough interweaving of God's goodness and God's power in our approach to God. He is not simply all-powerful and the rest well don't worry about because he makes it the way he makes it rather at every step every advance of his power there is a revelation of his goodness and of his wisdom and indeed of his love one of the ways we express our confidence in the you know marrying of all-powerful and all-good uh, is the notion that again comes to us from the Old Testament that God is our refuge and strength in every situation that we might find ourselves in in every need and in every adversity. Maybe some of you know, uh, you get to trick out the liturgy a little bit in the Western, right? I, I don't know enough about Eastern liturgy, if there's an equivalent, but I'm sure someone here can tell me. Uh, when the uh, bishop is saying mass, you have a pontifical liturgy. It's when the bishop says it, and there's a nice blessing formula. Uh, instead of the Lord be with you and with your spirit, uh, you have instead, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And I think that, you know, that's a very uh, profound sentiment distilled and extracted out of the first revelation we have of God in Genesis. He who made everything by his power and goodness and love is therefore the person that we can go to for every need, no matter what it might be. This is not a book that is for the faint-hearted. <laughs> Eric Vogelin's Order in History, Volume 1, Israel and Revelation, a few thousand pages there. Uh, but he did have a nice observation that I recalled. 
that this was one of the radical ways that you know the Jews both experienced something new in this notion of God that they received and also were constantly tempted to dilute it. Uh, Vogelin likes to observe that precisely because God was free of any kind of limiting factor in Jewish revelation, uh, he was adaptable to every social and political situation. You know, and that's very different from the special purpose deities that you see in Egyptian religion or in Babylonian religion uh, or in New Age religion, right? Because that's one of the things that surprised me when I used to teach in community college. We, we do some philosophy and proofs for God's existence, and I thought the primary obstacle would be atheism. But I kept getting questions like, well, well, how do we know there's not more than one creator? Or how do we know that you know, the one that created is the one that assists us? Or how do we know that the one that made the world is the one to go to for questions of the mind or questions of the heart? And then it dawned on me that about a third of them were Wiccan. You know, uh, this is new age, uh, new age polytheism. And so talk about an about face from what I expected. Uh, one of the fun things about being Catholic is that we have deep history and so it's time to dust off. I think sometimes these things we haven't touched in over a thousand years. But like I mentioned a moment ago, that was still a live issue, the time of Origen and Irenaeus the time of Chrysostom and the Cappadocian Fathers, the time of Augustine and Jerome and Basil, uh, they still had to give live and ready arguments against the notion of a plurality of deities, that each took care of its own domain. And in the Hebrew Revelation, startlingly, not so. Uh, when necessary, God could be a god of war, fighting Israel's battles, like with Joshua and the conquest. Uh, god could also be sought as a god for prosperity and peace when the Jews settled from being nomads and began their agricultural life in the land. Uh, god was a god that was concerned with the fate of history and nations. He was a covenant-making god. He wanted to see his people thrive and to retain their religious identity. And god was even a god of the kings, a god of the royal order, uh, the god of David, the god of Solomon, the god ultimately who gave us his son, our king Jesus Christ. And so because of that tremendous flexibility of God, the Jews kind of had to stretch their hearts, you know, compared to other ancient peoples to learn how to trust this one being in everything. And sometimes it came with the flip side temptation of diluting God and wanting to go to him uh, just for one area of their life, or maybe conflating him when they went to him time and time again for a good harvest and safety in their home. Uh, he, maybe he got watered down into Baal, the god of agriculture and the Canaanites, where if they were really concerned about battle, perhaps they would only think of God in a militaristic fashion and forget about his equal concern for the peace and prosperity of peoples. We might face that spiritual temptation in our own lives too. You know, uh, he's my go-to guy for A, B, and C, but the other areas of life, either I'm pretty much on my own or else uh, maybe I'll put my trust in something else. Uh, my stockbroker, my doctor, uh, you know, my, I don't know what, my car mechanic. Uh, there's, there's a lot of temptation that, that's kind of natural. Uh, when there's a pressing need, we go to God. And uh, when there's not so pressing of a need, we behave almost as if that terrain belonged to somebody else. And that was part of how the Jews, you know, had to stretch their hearts. That's why the Shema prayer uh, calls them, you know, to love God with all their heart and all their strength and all their mind because he is the source and ultimately uh, the provident God over all domains of human activity. So 
one thing that's neat, uh, a few different scholars observe it, is that you know this god is an international god. It is not how ancient peoples typically thought of their deities. They were regional phenomena in the ancient world. You know, there was a god of the Macedonians, and there was a god or set of gods of the Egyptians, and a set of gods of the Romans. Uh, but one of the neat things, uh, I find this point, it's probably in many more authors too, uh, but in that Ratzinger book I just mentioned, he observes it. Uh, Rene Latourelle also mentioned, also observes it. A volume, again, not for the faint of heart, Gerhard von Rod's two-volume Old Testament theology. I have to tell you, it's kind of dry. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that's why you ironically pay people to read this stuff in graduate school. Uh, <laughs> it's suffering you pay for. Um, so I've seen it there. I get some references, but it's in a lot of places. That you know, remember that the Pentateuch, including these Genesis opening chapters, are the five books of Moses. They have a lot of anachronisms. You know, like. There's clean and unclean animals going onto the ark. Well, that distinction only comes much later in Leviticus. Is Moses being weird or forgetful or what's going on there? No, this was written for the Jewish people at the time of the Exodus. And so they would have been familiar with those categories. And a lot of times you'll see those categories bleeding, black, bleeding back into the Genesis narrative. But Genesis, you know, which means of origins, we get the book title from the Septuagint. Uh, this, is the, uh, this is the generations, or this is the origins of heaven and earth, says Genesis 2.4. It's ultimately the backstory for Israel. It's the uh, ultimate prehistory of the nation. You know, more directly tied, Genesis 12 through 50, with the calling of Abraham, and then Isaac and Jacob, and the 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. But even Genesis 1 through 11, the so-called primeval history, is ultimately a history for Israel. And uh, Israel worked backwards, it seems, from their experience of the Exodus to this notion that God was able to redeem them precisely because he was the God of heaven and earth. You know, that's part of why this had a particularly pointed concern. Moses narrates it to them because uh, they, you know, might have been puzzled as a people uh, you know, familiar with the worldview of other gods, that how was it God was able, in the midst of this foreign terrain, some other set of deities turf, and in a place distant from the promised land, how was God with a mighty arm able to redeem us out of the midst of this foreign people? Uh, Ratzinger, in that volume, has a, uh, a short, well, a long quote. The prophets opened a new page and taught Israel that it was only then He's commenting on the Babylonian captivity, that the true face of God appeared and that he was not restricted to that particular piece of land. He was not the God of one place, but had power over heaven and earth. Therefore, he could drive his faithless people into another land in order to make himself known there. And so it came to be understood that this God of Israel was not a God like the other gods, but that he held sway over every land and every people. He could do this, however, because he himself had created everything in heaven and on earth. That's a Catholic God. Uh, that's ultimately the whole notion of what it means to be a Catholic, is to be part of the universal religion. Uh, the religion that does not know boundaries of ethnicity or terrain, uh, boundaries of nation or state, but 
a recognition that just as there is one God, doctrine of monotheism, there is also one family of man. And that is uh, you know, nicely summed up in the Our Father, that the common prayer of all Christians is that no matter what our particular origins, we have different human mothers and fathers, uh, we all can call on the same one God as our Father. And as a consequence, the doctrine of monotheism shows us indirectly the universal brotherhood of man, which I think is a, you know, a precious foundation, uh, even in the Old Testament, for what we know from the end of Matthew's Gospel, the Great Commission, go therefore and baptize all nations in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That universal scope of evangelization has as its purpose, as so many of the fathers of the church like to point out, a regathering of the human race into that original community that it was destined for, even at creation. That the one God who created us all is our common father, and that we should worship him together no matter when nor where, uh, as one people. And I think you know that's kind of the beauty of the second half of the Shema prayer is that it starts with the profession of monotheism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And then ends with what is, in some ways, if you think about it, like I've tried to meditate on for a few minutes, a very logical conclusion, that we all should love the Lord our God with our entire heart, with our entire soul, and with our entire might. And that's not far away if you understand the unity of the human family, like I just sketched it, from the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18. Another key insight of the Genesis text uh, is that God makes an intelligent and intelligible creation. The structure of the work of the six days, you know, builds from the most elementary to the most refined. It starts with the separation of light and darkness and works us all the way up from mud to man. And we see man as the apex of God's creation. And man, created in the image and likeness of God, has this special ability to know and to savor and to rejoice in what God has made. And one of the profound consequences of this, Latterell uh, observes it, other authors have taken it up in much more detail, is that this notion of a God that creates things that are orderly and intelligible is the basis for the development of Western natural science. You can't study a chaotic moving target. Uh, ultimately, the notion that there is a God who created the human world that we live in uh, with a set of intelligible laws, uh, you have to have a kind of confidence in the orderliness and the goodness and the stability of creation to have the pluck or the temerity to try to understand it. And uh, Ratzinger has a nice meditation on that, again, from the In the Beginning volume. He says, out of that, let there be, it was not some haphazard stew that was con concocted. The more we know of the universe, the more profoundly we are struck by a reason whose ways we can only contemplate with astonishment. In pursuing them, we can see anew that creating intelligence to whom we owe our reason. Albert Einstein once said that in the laws of nature, this is quote within a quote now, there is revealed such a superior reason that everything significant which has arisen out of human thought and arrangement is, in comparison with it, the merest empty reflection. And because Ratzinger is a scholar, he gives you a footnote, because there's a lot of things that get passed around, as Einstein said. <laughs> so 
I think that's one of the things that's important about you know looking at how we've developed this in the Catholic tradition. Um, we believe in the scientific knowability of the world because that's part of the structure of what God indeed reveals to us about himself and about how he created it. Uh, sometimes, and I don't want to throw uh, uh, camps and schools of, of fellow Christians under a bus, so I, I say this with reverence, but sometimes you find a, a fundamentalist antipathy to modern science, and I'm not saying there aren't real areas of concern with atheistic science and people making specious claims about stuff that hasn't been proven. Um, but one of the things that I think underscores uh, the pursuit that we've always seen in the Catholic Church of the natural sciences, uh, just as so, so many Jewish scientists and Jewish doctors, is that we know, not only from reason but from revelation, that God made the world in an intelligible and orderly way, and the more deeply we penetrate into that order, the more deeply we come to know his very mind. Uh, you can pursue the natural sciences out of a very wholehearted love of God and not from atheistic motives. As someone who used to, I have a degree in physics from Yale, it was great fun, I still like to play with the equipment. Uh, but you know, one of the things that, that always struck me was that there are you know, very godly motivations, and I found this part of the richness of our Catholic tradition, whether in cosmology or whether in biology. Uh, so many people you know, that were both monks and scientists and part of that came from this notion that we see already in Genesis 1 with the orderly, hierarchical, law-abiding, systematic explication of how God created. It's like an open-minded invitation to come and explore this structure that God has set up for us who have, like he does, a mind to know. So I, I left out. <laughs> it didn't used to be that way. Uh, Algebra is, you know, ultimately an Islamic term. Uh, there were, uh, you know, in medieval Spain, uh, a vast development of Islamic sciences. And that might be a sad point of contrast to the way Islam is in many parts of the world today. Uh, so I'm not going to make a categorical statement about it because we have to be, like, examining the whole uh, of Islam. but. Uh, I think sometimes it's sad when a kind of fundamentalism goes hand in hand with a disparagement of reason and a disparagement of natural science. Uh, and one of the ways I like to remind people not to do that is by Psalm 19 or Romans 1 or even looking at the Genesis account, that God makes it in an intelligible structure precisely so that we can see that this is his handiwork. Another thing that's kind of fun, I didn't want to trot out for you all kinds of ancient Babylonian texts. Uh, but God doesn't always make the world for the good of his creatures in other religious accounts. The gods make man in the Babylonian mythology because they're tired of terraforming. They, they don't want to have to move dirt and mountains around. They don't want to have to carve riverbeds. So they make a uh, fecund, industrious little man, and when he ends up over-multiplying and Literally, uh, his noise is too loud and begins to disturb the sleep of the gods. Then they decide to flood the world to cut down on the numbers because they've done most of the work of shaping the earth. Uh, that's not uh, the same picture that we have in the Hebrew creation story. Uh, there, God creates all things for the good of his creatures, not because of some need he lacked and not because of some uh, 
you know, uh, purely utilitarian desire he has for them that's disposable. We'll jump ahead into the wisdom literature, wisdom of Solomon 11, 24 through 25. For thou lovest all things that exist, and hath loathing for none of the things which thou hast made. For thou wouldst not have made anything if thou hast hated it. Every element of creation is something that can be redeemed. There is no thing that is natural that can't also be Catholic, that can't also be dedicated and consecrated to the service and the pursuit of God. And that's ultimately because he made everything out of love, and we can return it in love to the God who loved us by giving it to us. Another fun thing often passed over is, uh, again in the structure of Genesis 1, God creates us to worship him. And it's a little subtle to the English reader. Most people get the seven days part, that God makes the world in seven days, and if you need a reminder, uh, you get it again when you uh, get the uh, first commandment in Exodus. There's a clear recall of God's rest on the seventh day. You know, Genesis, he makes the world in six days, and then on the seventh day he rests. Not because he's tired, but because we should rest. God does a lot of things, like ask us questions and give examples, not because he needs something, but because we do. Uh, God's rest on the seventh day, the sabbatical rest, uh, is precisely an example for us, that we should contemplate the goodness of the creation that God has made. Uh, so we can see the weekly structure culminating in the Sabbath in the six days of work and the seventh day of rest in Genesis 1, but also uh, the creation of the sun and the moon in Genesis 1.14. Uh, Ratzinger likes to point out that it would have been a little shocking to the ancient reader to see these things which were for other cultures divinities, merely lamps hung up in the heavens. And for what purpose? Uh, as signs for seasons, days, and years. And if you look at the Hebrew words that are used there, Moed, Yom, and Shana, like Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, uh, it can mean season in the sense of agricultural season, but it can also mean a liturgical season. Uh, Yom, like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was a word that meant day, but also meant a feast day or a fast day like the same way we use that to this day when we talk about holy days on the calendar. Or when you say what day is today and you want to know what saint of the day or when you look at your breviary and you say what's the day, what's the prayer of the day. So that same sense of day has a sacred sense to it and years of course because the Jews had not only uh, celebrations like we do with Mary the Mother of God on January 1st placed at the head of our calendar year but they also had you know of course not only a yearly celebration uh, of Rosh Hashanah like they do to this day, but there were individual years, like the sabbatical year. Every seventh year was a sacred year. Every 50th year was the Jubilee year, an even more sacred year. And part of the whole structure of creation uh, is so that man might see God's marking out time and marking out space, and that man might worship him in that space and in that time. Part of our whole liturgical cycle is an ongoing sanctification of time. Our liturgical calendar is the sanctification of the year. The uh, second you know, most dignified prayer of the church after the Mass, the Liturgy of the Hours, the Divine Office, is an ongoing sanctification of time. And we see the purpose of that even in the Genesis creation story 
where they're not gods, they're God's timepieces, and their purpose is to keep us on track in our regular worship of him. Two quick points, since I know we're out of time. We also see a God whose word is law. Lazarell comments, when God speaks his word to physical creatures, it becomes natural law. They carry out his commands. They behave regularly as they are designed. And when he speaks his word to moral creatures, it becomes a moral law. We get the first commandment in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. God begins to direct man in the right use of his freedom. So too, likewise, if you count how many times God says, let there be, it's 10 of them. Six days, but 10 let there be statements, paralleling the 10 precepts of the Decalogue, the 10 commandments. And we see God already in Genesis 3, acting as judge of the human race, how well we are doing in the keeping of those commandments in the garden, certainly in the flood, and then this concept of the day of the Lord, which grows from a time that God will judge Israel to a time that God will judge the entire world in the Old Testament. It takes up a cosmic sort of eschatological, apocalyptic sense in prophets like Joel. So God is a lawgiver and God is a judge. And uh, kind of a leap to the next thing we'll talk about in the second talk, God creates all things by means of his word and his spirit. Because even in the first three verses of Genesis, we have God, the Spirit of God, and God speaking. And the later Old Testament writers, especially in the wisdom literature, would ask themselves, what does it mean to say God has a word, God has a spirit? He clearly doesn't have a vocal word like you and I do. He clearly doesn't have a bodily spirit. So what are these things? And that becomes the basis of this notion of these eternal others in God. There before anything else came to be, that God had a word and a spirit from all eternity. And it was that word and that spirit together with him that created the entire world. And that will be the springboard for a Trinitarian understanding of creation that we're going to develop a little bit more in the next talk. Yeah, good, good question, too, because this happens again at the division of the monarchy after uh, Solomon, where Jeroboam leads the ten northern tribes uh, in, in Sism, and uh, they make golden calves again. And I believe it says, I have to check the text, you know, this, this is your Yahweh, O Israel. Uh, and so it's sort, of, it's, it's sort of shocking. One of the things that, um, there are a whole bunch of traditional attributes of the one God that fell off the list for tonight's talk. Uh, one of them is traditionally transcendence, you know, that God is not uh, like his creatures. There's a radical divide between God who exists in himself from all eternity and the creatures that come to be from him. And one of the reasons for the prohibition on depicting God uh, is a very human tendency. I think a tendency that we still do even without a molten image or a graven image uh, to try to bring God down safely in a box and to put him in a familiar human-shaped form such that we might feel more comfortable approaching him on our terms rather than his. Uh, you know, part of the difficulty 
you know, the, I, while I do think that sometimes the wisdom of the ancients surprises us in our modern stupidity, there is a simplicity about ancient thought too that does have to leap up to a God as pure spirit that is invisible and immaterial and eternal, and that's difficult. And I think there was probably a very natural tendency to want to imagine God in a way that was like the mythical creatures that were alleged to be powerful beings in the ancient world. A lot of these things were personifications of cosmic forces or natural forces or human forces. So, you know, it, what can sometimes go on there is trying to put together two things that can't go together. The God is he's revealing himself to Israel and our desire to put that into a very well-grown familiar category because it's safer and it's less radical. I think C.S. Lewis likes to say um, in, or what book is it? It's, one, it's not the Narnia, but he refers back to it. The Aslan is not a tame... No, it isn't the Narnia thing. Aslan is not a tame lion. You know, he's a wild lion. Uh, he is not some, uh, something that you might safely put in a zoo. And I think there's a, there's a real human tendency. We make idols of different things today. It could be like money or power or sex or fame or glory or like American Idol, right? It's kind of funny how that's gone. Like the pop musicians are our idols. And we even use that term without irony these days. But I think there's, uh, I don't, while it seems absurd to us in some measure, because the form of an idol is just not something that we use anymore. Uh, you know, we don't see people with their idols really anymore in the physical molten image, graven image sense. Uh, I think what it sits on is that this was the familiar way to dumb God down and to make God uh, safely like what we, you know, gives us what we expect, doesn't stretch us too much. Uh, you know, is a God tailored to our own needs rather than the other way around? You know, that's why the Jews would often refer to the difficulty of the pious life as a kind of spiritual circumcision. You tailor yourself, quite analogously, you know, you cut off the things that are unsuitable for the pursuit of God. Uh, the idol worker does the opposite, right? A work of a man's hand uh, crafted to, to be a God according to our design and not for us to be a creature according to his. So uh, the shape might be unusual, but the tendency, I think, is very real. You had mentioned that um, as far as your studies have taken you, that there was no mention in Genesis about um, the angels. Um, right now I'm taking a class in Genesis. It's a Catholic scripture study, and it's excellent. It's very deep. And uh, it, sometimes there's speculation, and one of the things that they said here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, well, 3 and 4, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 4, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Now, what I've heard them say is that the darkness was the demons, and the light was the light of Christ. So, have you heard that, or have you read the original in Hebrew? <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, first, just to be clear, uh, Genesis certainly does make reference to angels, right? Abraham is visited uh, by angels. But I just meant, yeah, Genesis, the, yeah, just Genesis 1. Uh, so a lot of times, you know, people are uh, curious about that because we seem to get a comprehensive narration of everything that comes to be, but no mention of the angels. Uh, I have heard that as, as tucked into the separation of light from darkness. Um, I'm trying to press my memory. To remember if that's what Augustine says in his De Genesis on Literum, uh, on Genesis according to the letter, 
but my memory of what particular fathers say in which commentaries is not that good. So, um, yeah, some people have seen it as implicit in the creation of the heavens. And therefore, uh, you know, presumably with that, the complement of heavenly beings. So, it would be nice if it were told to us with the same word, but uh, we don't get that in Genesis 1. I'm just wondering in relation to the, um, the way God revealed himself, the reason, uh, revelation, and I'm wondering if there might be some connection with the development of the intellectual thought when man went out from the, the caves and the forests and started building cities and uh, cathedrals that began to create pictorial images of God. And if this might have had not had something to do with actually creating our own pictures of him with the possibilities of trying to understand through the intellect rather than the revelations which had come in the earlier times when people were really feeling the presence of God and the presence of angels. And they were trying to now think their way through it. Because now, actually what you finished with a few minutes ago, you could almost say that the computers and cell phones that are constantly in the hands of young people could almost be as idols. And so we've moved through this development of the intellect and almost an, an evolution of the mind and put God there in that box, too. I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, it's a, well, that's a, that's a lot to think about, too. Uh, one of the fun things, you'll see a nice, a nice commentary series is the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture series. It basically goes verse by verse or chunk by chunk through the Scripture and gives you different commentaries of different fathers. A lot of them put a, a good amount of thought into man being created according to the image and likeness of God. And then in the, the next time the phrase comes up, it's, and then according to God's image, he made him. It doesn't say likeness the second time. And the thought there is kind of, you know, man is created in the image of God with his free will and his intellect and endowed with a certain natural ability, natural ability to know God. Uh, but the likeness is our further progress in holiness, you know, to become even more like God. Although we're like him in our natural endowment, and in the state of grace, the idea is that's given to grow. And it's kind of funny that our image of God, that is our mind, has as one of its jobs trying to make an image of God. We're the image of God that tries to imagine God. <laughs> so uh, I think that is a very natural tendency to want to express in all kinds of ways. Um, and once it's purified of the temptation to idolatry, like religious art is very beautiful because it's incorporating the senses up into proper contemplation of the divine. Once there's no confusion, you know, about what the divine is, I think it's, it's all part of the process of the image of God trying to form an image in itself of the image, which is uh, kind of returning light to light, but it's a, it's a funny process, isn't it? I happened about two weeks ago to meet somebody who is of a certain faith. I mention it later, but maybe it's not important. And uh, this person is totally not not non-denominational Christian, but is very against organized faiths, and oddly thinks that the uh, father, of course, brought the son here, and so the son is not as great as the father. So isn't there equal divinity, three persons from our viewpoint of one God? Yes. Uh Absolutely, on that last point, <laughs> the, um, 
you know, the, the place, uh, if, if he's a Christian and, and reads the New Testament, I mean, I think the, the, place, the place to go for that is John's Gospel, because there you get uh, the most fervent and most repeated and most numerous statements about the uh, co-divinity of Father and Son. You know, everything that the Father has, he gives to the Son. Everything the Son has, he receives from the Father. The Son is here only to do the will of the Father. Um, the Son is to be glorified with the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world in the Last Supper discourse. Uh, John 5, John 8, John 10, and then 13 through 17, the Last Supper discourse in John, uh, are chock full of statements about that. Uh, since, since I was encouraged to plug books, where is it? I get a lot of mileage out of this. The pages are falling out. Uh, Ludwig Ott, Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. You have that? Uh, you know, it's short, it's compact, it's a, it's, a, it's a manual of theology. This was the kind of seminary textbook people would have. In fact, it's kind of a Cliff's Notes seminary textbook, if you can believe it. Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, Ludwig Ott, O-T-T. And, you know, you look in this section on the Trinity and you will get a wonderful series of like, biblical references, teachings of councils, uh, statements of faith, and that might be the, the first place to go if you want a, a ready list of citations for precise things like the divinity of the Father and the Son. Thank you very much, Professor Campbell. You're welcome. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.